lying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. That every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. That every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. That every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah, that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. Like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we move it, it feels just like this. Feels just like this. It's just, it's like, like who the donkey? We would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody wild in our circumference. Make assumptions, it ain't nothing new. Fuck a mile, fuck a you. I've been chewing through these rappers, flavors lasting over loop. Don't go stupid, but better Carolina rights. Two J's and I'm not nobody. Good times, hanging in a chapel. Waiting for a hot meal, lighting up the combine. Looking for a hot meal, about to start a cock. Lalegia, silicon, we live like a top top. Kicks like 808, kicks like 808. I ain't trying to say it again. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and today on Bad Faith Podcast, we talked about East Palestine and the extent to which it's largely fallen off the radar, even of conservative news. After uh, they were made a really uh, heavy, had a really heavy presence on the ground, we're making a lot of completely accurate, frankly, uh, for the most part, criticisms of Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden's failure to be as attentive to the crisis as they could otherwise be. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking to Louis DeAngelis, who I've spoken to a number of times now on Rising, but it was so nice to get a full. Uh, you know, hour to talk to him in interview, long interview format. He spent about two weeks in East Palestine um, a few weeks ago now and has been doing amazing on the ground reporting primarily for status coup, although he is independent. Status coup is the one that sent him to East Palestine. And if you're not already doing so, consider you know supporting uh, status coup in any way that you can, even if it's just following them on social media and retweeting uh, their articles and liking their videos and things like that, because uh, they are one of the few uh, left journalism outlets that is doing on the ground reporting, whatever you think of the editorialization that sometimes happens. I find it uh, so valuable. 
So valuable. So I know that last uh, episode, we didn't talk much about Thursday's ep with Corey Robin on the Clarence Thomas brouhaha. There's been more news in that front that was kind of emerging as we recorded Thursday's call-in. And I know some of you felt like that issue got short shrift. So if you would like to talk about that today, we absolutely can. And of course, the reason why we didn't talk about Clarence Thomas very much on Thursday is because people had more to say about Monday's episode with Aaron Reed about trans issues. And of course, the floor is open to talk about that and any other episode and any other thing you'd like to talk about. Right now, uh, Elon Musk is sitting down with Tucker Carlson, or rather Tucker Carlson is airing an interview that he recorded with Elon Musk Previously, I was listening to that a little bit before they came in, and it sounded like they were just about to get into the Twitter files. Actually, let me just let me just see if I can pop in and listen for a second. If the public is happy with it, that's what matters. Um, and the public will speak with their actions. Oh, they're, they're, I mean, they're, 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 if, if, if they find truth Twitter to be useful, they will use it more. And if they find it to be not useful, they will use it less. If they find it to be the best source of truth, I think they will use it more. You know, now there's, there's obviously... <laughs> A lot of um, organizations that are used to having sort of unfettered influence uh, on Twitter um, that no longer have that. We used and to the New are... York Times of their of their badge this morning, and then you called them diarrhea. You called them. <laughs> okay. You did. You did. I'm just I'm just quoting you. You you, yes. you described their Twitter feed as diarrhea. I said, I said it was a Twitter equivalent, Twitter equivalent of diarrhea. Okay, this doesn't sound especially edifying. I don't know why they're talking about diarrhea. I really hoped we were going to get something about um, the Twitter files um, given during the Twitter spaces last week. Elon said it was basically over. Um, I'm really eager to hear more. I don't know if you caught it. Matt Taibbi wrote a kind of scathing for Matt Taibbi. He's a pretty even-tempered guy. Um response to everything that went down, uh, although it's not especially detailed. He wrote it while he was on vacation and trying to live his life and spend time with his family. So I wonder if we're going to get more from Matt, but I really would like to know if it really is the case that Elon is abandoning this project, which I think is important, um, simply because of an interpersonal falling out with one of the journalists involved. So please do let me know if anyone's listening to the Tucker thing, if they get back to the core of the Twitter files. I'd love to tune into that for a second. Um, but let me start with this cue. Chris, what's on your mind tonight? Hello. Hello. Hey, how you doing on this beautiful Monday? I am doing quite well on this beautiful Monday. How about yourself, Chris? I'm good. I'm uh, just finishing up some dinner right about now. So um, that's pretty much my plans. Then I'm going to go grab some eat and I'm drinking a nice glass of wine. Oh, Okay. <laughs> is that is that what I hear with those ice cubes clicking and clacking around in there? Uh, yeah. So I'm not a guy who likes uh, warm wine. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to be cold. So, and unfortunately, I just got this wine. It was sitting in my car. So I'm like, I gotta get look, I'm wine. not judging. I'm not <laughs> hating. Okay. I know the wine drinkers are probably like sitting <laughs> sully in this right now. Like, ugh. Come on. You you do you, and you enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I did want to uh, speak briefly uh, on this uh, episode because um, it's kind of interesting. Like it, it, it has kind of dissipated as far as like the media. And I definitely would want to shout out um, Status Cool for kind of just keeping up with the updates. I actually mm -hmm. follow them on YouTube, so I kind of know what's happening, uh, new things that are breaking. So like the, I remember when they broke the news that um, I believe it was the EPA. Like they didn't even have the right equipment to test everything mm -hmm. 
but then telling everyone that it was safe. And it was just like, God, I mean, like, I think this is, this is clearly the next um, Flint, Michigan thing though, but it's just crazy how like this stuff happens and how many people are possibly harmed in these things. And then nothing ever really comes of it outside of maybe an apology. Maybe you'll get like a little lawsuit for like a bunch of people that they all got to split out and everything. But like, it just seems like it's, it'll 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 happen again it'll just continue to keep happening again and again and again so yeah i don't know if you saw the story where a bunch of the dirt they had dug up dug up um, from east palestine and were transporting somewhere else to be i don't know cleaned or processed or buried deep or whatever they do with toxic dirt Mm -hmm. the truck toppled over and spilled and contaminated a whole new area (laughs) i mean you can't you couldn't write it this way gosh jeez yeah why is like everything just like breaking down in this goddamn like god damn? Well, you know, infrastructure's got to be maintained. Oh yeah, you're right. Well, we got the Biden bill, so you know that'll help, right? <laughs> 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 you know the thing that they uh, uh liberals are always telling us that we need to be uh, happy and excited about. So you know that great thing that's supposed yeah. to be on the road. I think I saw some stat that said like forty percent of all. Uh, bridges or something in the United States are on the verge of will be on the verge of collapse or will collapse in the <laughs> next forty years if they aren't maintained. And so, I mean, it's not that it's just this a scale issue. The scale of the Build Back Better investment. I mean, the infrastructure aspects of the bill are necessary and good. It's just mm-hmm. are they enough? You know, is the question. Yeah, it seems like we never really like fix the problem. It's just we just kick the can down the road. That's kind of like what it seems to be. Like, yeah. But what what particular issue did you want to ask about or talk about today, Chris? Oh, um, yeah. So outside of um the East Palestine thing, um, I know you did you you saw I knew I know you guys did a um you guys did a uh, topic on this uh what happened with that uh that little sixteen year old kid who was like shot mm-hmm. for ringing the door. Um, I saw recently an update. I think it was on Shave Room and stuff like that that the kid is home. So. Mm-hmm. Looks like he made a full recovery, but it's it kind of got me back thinking about obviously what happened in uh, D.C. with the kid, where the guy came out and saw some kids breaking into cars and then shot the dude. Mm-hmm. This one, I mean, obviously it's not so as like clear cut because it's like, damn, dude just went made an honest mistake, and the cost of that was almost was basically yeah, almost his life. Yeah. So for those who haven't been following the story in Kansas City, Missouri, Ralph Paul Yarl, he's a 16 year old. He was supposed to pick up his uh, his brothers at uh, North. Uh, basically, he was given like a street address and he went to the street versus the avenue or the avenue versus the street. Yeah, I think um, uh, Northeast 115th Terrace versus 100 Northeast 115th Street. Mm-hmm. He uh, was supposed to be picking up his siblings there. He rang the doorbell and the owner of the house or the occupant of the house shot him through the glass door in the head and then shot him again once he was on the ground. And then somehow the kid is, survived and escaped. And he had to, I think, ask three separate people before he was able to get Someone to assist him with medical help. Yeah. So, I mean, and that kind of like it brings kind of this kind of back to like what is our upset? Uh, what is our acceptance level we're willing to have as far as like the idea of like people owning uh, firearms and their you know their right to defend themselves? Because in this kind of situation, of course, you know, even I I have the opinion I have the opinion of. If someone breaks into your house, you know what happens, happens. Though, but ringing a doorbell, seeing a black kid and just go, oh, shit. Like, 
That's through right. a door. So you through can't even, door. I mean, there's just no argument about anyone trying to enter into a house or anything like that when you literally obviously had a door between you mm-hmm. to shoot through. Exactly. So then it's like, in, in our course, it seems like obviously with us or with like, particularly in like black males and black boys. Yeah. It's like the innocence of us is just like, just does not exist. I know you guys probably brought up like Tamara Rice, but I thought about that kind of situation where mm-hmm. it's like, some kids can't even just like exist. Like the idea that Tamir Rice deserved to be shot because he was playing with a toy gun on a playground. But yeah. people can justify stuff like that. And yeah. I mean, obviously with that officer, he got away and then was able to be hired again, even after like a fuck up thing like that. And it's just like, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of bleak. Like, I mean, I, I hope some, I mean, obviously I think something will happen because, and maybe there's more to the story that we didn't know, though. But regardless, I'm trying to think. Let's just say that he walked around, he ringed the doorbell, nobody answered. He walked around the house, then walked back to the door, and then got shot. That's still not like justification at all. By the way, I don't know if you just saw this story that just that just broke uh, around 5 p.m. today in Saratoga County. A woman, this time a, a white woman, Kate Kaylin Gillis, was shot apparently Saturday evening. By a 65-year-old man, she died um, tragically, and the reason he shot her is because he, she turned her car around in the man's driveway. Mm. He whatever he shot her because the man she turned she she turned her car around in his driveway. Oh wow! And he put she oh. shot her because she pulled into his driveway. That's crazy. I do that all the time when I'm like wrong and I don't feel like driving down the road. I'm like, oh, let me just make this quick Yui real quick and pull this up. That's crazy. Yep. Here, here's the here's the the story from Times Union. Um, uh, this is uh, Murphy is the county sheriff. Murphy said the group mistakenly drove up to a house on Patterson Hill Road, 19 miles northeast of Gillis's residence in Schulerville. As they attempted to turn the car around, the sheriff said Kevin D. Monahan came out on his porch and fired two shots one of which hit Gillis while she was seated in the car. No one from the group had left the car or tried to enter Monahan's house before he came out and opened fire, Murphy said. With Gillis wounded, the group drove to Cemetery Road in the neighboring town of Salem, six miles south of Monahan's residence, at which time the shooting was reported to 911. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, and it seems like there's so many of these, like so many of these. I remember just, oh, I think it was a couple months, or if it was not last year, a guy was, um, an Amazon driver was shot at. He was in some mm. bum fucking square in the fucking county. He pulled mm. up his car because he didn't have the Amazon van, because that is actually natural that, you know, a lot of the drivers don't drive the Amazon vans. They're driving their cars now. Um, they're, they'll rent a box truck out for as how long as they can and do that kind of stuff. And literally just pulled up on the dude's, um, dude's property. Dude started shooting at him and he had to run, literally run in the woods mm. in the middle of fucking nowhere. And I guess I'm like, Maybe I guess this is kind of the price we have for the Second Amendment, though. But like, um, I wonder what you're kind of like. You like, um, is this the price that you think we pay for it? No, I think I think a problem is. I mean, also I think we have a lot of unwell people with guns, and I think in these kind of situations, these people are so like unwell. But then also, it's the idea that you know, like, um, instead of like trying to figure something out, you just think you can put yourself in that kind of situation and think you're going to respond in a like meaningful way or you know or, or a way that's like that's conductive to the whole situation so i don't i mean i i just i honestly don't know 
unwell people with guns without guns are able to cause significantly less damage mm. because guns are tools that are specifically designed for killing. Kill. Mm-hmm. And many of them are designed to kill uh, many people as weapons of war in rapid succession with uh, automatic or semi-automatic bullets mm-hmm. firing capacity. Uh, so my feeling is that the bar to access guns should be higher and that the punishment for people who commit crimes like killing this young lady and shooting this 16 year old kid in the head and then shooting him again because you're a cruel, horrible, murderous bastard should be just about as severe as any crime I can imagine. Uh, you should penalty should be and perhaps that will create some incentive effect but probably not the mm. only real incentive is going to be to make it more difficult for people to access guns with which they can you that they can use so impulsively and i i understand that reasonable gun owners are you know suffer the consequence of this that it doesn't the bar shouldn't be impossible but it should be a lot harder than it is and people should have to regularly recertify and check in or do whatever, because I suspect that in both of these cases, it's not going to be like mental illness any more so than anybody is mentally ill. Everybody's mentally ill. We live in a sick, sad society. True, They're just going to be people who made a choice. And after the last shooting, the Nashville one, Mm -hmm. one of those local, I forget if he was like a local, a state rep, I think it was a state rep. He was asked like what to do about this. And he was like, you know, I don't know. This is just the cost of gun uh, of the second amendment. And I understand that people feel like that's a cost that they're willing to pay. I am not personally. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he was asked what, what he does to keep his kids safe. And he says, well, I, I don't put them in public school, but the Nashville school was yep. private. Yep. It was wow. a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe he said he homeschools them or whatever. Yeah, um, but, I that. yeah, because it was yeah, such a like tasteless kind of oh okay oh well I don't have to deal with that I homeschool yeah okay you can afford to homeschool your child so okay yeah right so you know I don't know like people can make the argument that that's like the cost society should have to pay but no one else in the world is making that kind of a gamble everyone is- else says we would rather just not have six year olds killed yeah. Or just give assault rifles to people who are not don't are not even twenty one, but have that kind of access. Because for some reason, an assault rifle is still technically a rifle, and a regular hunting rifle is the same as an assault rifle. Which I think we all know that is not really true at all. But because of that kind of thing, it's like they're able to like buy those things. They were able to buy it like an assault rifle. Also, in this case, it's not clear to me that either of these people yeah. were shot with assault rifles or anything like that. They're just shot with guns so i also think that stand your ground laws are toxic and they make people feel like if they're in their house they're willing to act with the same impunity that basically we've been told police officers are allowed to act with we are we we set these subjective standards of if i'm afraid i'm allowed to kill somebody cops act like that Mm -hmm. if they're subjectively afraid they're justified in killing anybody Yep. And now we've told homeowners, well, if you're subjectively afraid, if you're in your home, you're allowed to kill anybody. So why are we surprised that people are standing in their doorways killing people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I know something I think that I would be good, at least like something that they um, that has been talked about is the idea of raising the age limit to at least 25, 26. So at least 
people are, I guess you can say, I guess as far as, uh, yeah, somewhat like. Maybe, uh, but these or, people, the man yeah. who killed this child and the man, yeah, sorry, who shot this old. child yeah. and the man, the 65 year old who killed this, this, um, woman were, were not, you know, youths. Yeah. Maybe it's, yeah. Our, it's also in our culture. Maybe it could be the culture too. I definitely think that we have like a very, intact culture with the idea of owning a weapon and shooting and shooting people if and then of course we always give ourselves the little relax of of yeah if i'm afraid or i'm defending myself but then which which you do find sometimes is that that is that is subjective and then if we're questioning our own fucking police officers and their use of force why would you then deputize random people who have no training no experience and i think people just think because they own a gun and they go to the gun range once a month or something like that 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 requires training it's way more intense and way more than that so it's i i, I don't know yeah yeah well because i appreciate you calling in tonight yeah no problem all right keep the faith you too all right, uh, Lucius. You, you think that's a new name, new caller? What's in your mind tonight? Can you unmute yourself, Lucius? You got to press the little mic button so we can hear you talk. Okay, I think I'm unmuted. Perfect. Hey, yeah. Welcome. What's in your mind tonight? So first, um, the only one I've done so far is useful idiots. Though I need to get in on the uh, Sabby Sabs action because her crowd is just amazing. Um, awesome. Well, welcome. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Sounds like a nice little cluster of some of my faves right there. So, oh, what yeah, what brings you to to the debrief tonight? Yeah. So I missed pretty much everything up until the last few minutes when I saw that you know it was live. So apologies for that. I just wanted to say, uh, probably off all the topics that have been discussed, uh, that I really appreciate what you in particular and Robbie. I got to give him props. Uh, have done with rising that like when Kim left, you know, there was this series of, I, I like crystal in certain respects, at least and Sagar very conditionally, but, um, you know, they left, I was like, Oh, it's going to be Ryan and Emily. Okay. Uh, then, you know, Kim comes along. I'm like, Oh my God. Like, I mean, she's such a dynamo. Just, she, she was killing it. Then she was gone. Um, you know, then it's like you and Robbie are, I would say, the kind of core, uh, like you're the nucleus of the show at this point. And uh, I just appreciate that you two have a really fun, jovial kind of chemistry and uh, and can get over your differences of opinion with grace with one another. And uh, well, so, I appreciate yeah, that. I thought I... that show was going to be like sinking, not rising. <laughs> Yeah, not rising you lol. Have to, like write the ship or whatever well i i appreciate that i really i sincerely enjoy doing the show with robbie um i think our leo energy means that we recover very quickly from whatever our disagreements oh, are leo. and um okay. we've come to understand each other and i think understand where we're coming from argument wise and are able to discern you know why we disagree and it cultivates a better faith engagement than when you're constantly scrutinizing someone to think, oh, well, do they really mean it? Are they just trying to get a dig in? Da, 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 da. Like, I think there's a yeah. confidence and a trust that's built up um, that makes it, frankly, an enjoyable experience for me. So I'm, I'm glad to be doing it, and I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah, and I've been a viewer for, like, since the start of the show, basically. So I've seen all of this develop, you know, like the character arc of you know, both of you. Uh, 
and how you relate, and it, it's really a, it's cute. I hope that like stays for as long as possible because it is fun to watch. So, Thanks, yeah, Lucius. That's all I got. I will let you get to the next caller. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you're not a stranger going forward. Thanks for calling in. Keep the faith. Yep. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Jonathan, what's on your mind tonight? Ah, hello. Um, I was delighted to see that you uh, you had uh, Lewis on. Uh, you know, we uh, like in Real Progressive, we have a, a, a relationship with Status Quo, and I think Steve was guest hosting when he first did his, like, basically came out there and, and said, like, I went over there, I stayed over there, and I got sick. Uh, and I mm-hmm. was like, this guy's a legend. Like, this guy's a hero. He's out there still talking to these people and kind of like giving us a, a, a like a window into the fact that the rest of the media would like us to forget that uh, essentially this place is still a clusterfuck and there's nobody coming to help. And it's kind of like it reminds me of that that feeling that I got as a first responder during the covid thing. Like we're waiting for, you know, all the the guys like on that movie Outbreak, you know, these these mm-hmm. uh, well-equipped federal agencies to come in and handle business and, you know, try to elbow each other out of the way and be like, no, I got this. No, I got this. And after a few minutes, you realize nobody's coming to help. Everything is a mess. Nobody knows what they're doing. Okay. And frankly, even when you know what you're supposed to do, there's obstructionism within the government. They're like, we're not going to do anything. No, like you guys are just, you know, basically their, their technique is to, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, what my dad does when, when the family's out of town and one of the animals craps on the floor, he just tosses a towel over it and, and forgets about it. <laughs> and just like leaves it for, for when the family gets home. And that's like that's basically what we're getting a window into that people need to realize because this has been going on for a long time. And whatever I and many other people think of of some of Jordan's shit libby politics, like you gotta give him credit because he's been on that Flint thing doing the same thing for years, even when he's been hemorrhaging money, even when uh, the government basically told him, nah, we're not going to do any of that. No, like not even going to prosecute, obviously, criminal activity. Um, like they just, you know, and getting obstructionism in every direction from not just the politicians, but the major media outlets. And, you know, people need to see this stuff. So, uh, like, I was glad you did that. I was glad you did that interview. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Sometimes I worry that, um, you know, the less topical um, interviews with people who aren't themselves big names or famous um, won't go over well. But I did, I find Lewis to be like a really engaging interlocutor. And I just so value that he, you know, occupied that space and went there and subjected himself and his health to doing that reporting. Um, And I'm I'm glad we were able to give uh, some platform to it. Yeah, I mean, I know that they say, like, you know, it's, journalists aren't supposed to be the story, but in a sense, like, that was a more effective way to get the point across than just about anything else. And you, like like I said, he, he, he mentioned, like, all these other reporters, they were there briefly, and then they mm-hmm. just left. But, you know, staying there and actually being like, oh, actually, I don't feel so good. Like, mm-hmm. this is bad. And, you know, kind of getting sick himself really, you know, gets the point across in the way that you kind of, 
like because like you said the camera can't smell things like you can't mm-hmm. you can't smell things through these videos and like realizing the person that brought you that story got sick in the process uh, you know really did kind of get that point across to anybody that actually saw the reporting the other thing like whether you like to admit it or not is that you're famous and in a sense uh you know doing these kinds of things really gives a boost to people like lewis and and status quo when they're doing this kind of work and you know i i it's a it's a very it's an extraordinarily valuable public service that you provided getting that work out there uh to a larger audience well, I'm not endorsing being famous, but I'll do what I can. <laughs> I'll yeah. do what I can with the platform I have. And I appreciate that, Jonathan. Yeah. By the way, you were one of the people who I know felt like there wasn't as much attention given to um, uh, the last episode as you might have liked. So feel free to get into that if you'd like, but no pressure. Um, no pressure. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the fact is, like, it kind of made me realize how much I didn't know about Clarence Thomas, how much... It seems like nobody knows about Clarence Thomas. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I have to uh, like I bought the book. I have to I have oh, to wonderful. read through it because like it kind of like put a lot of that stuff in a new light. And like nobody ever talks, at least until recently, about Clarence Thomas. Like he was just one of those yeah. guys that was flying under the radar since the Bush administration when I was a kid. And you know, basically, other than Anita Hill, nobody really knows anything about what he thinks, where he's coming from, what he believes. Uh, yeah. And like this was a real eye opener for me. It, it really was. One of the things that comes across in the book is how personally offended Clarence Thomas is by the implication that he has no kind of personal intellectual merit. His thoughts aren't his own, that he's purely an affirmative action hire, that he's silent on the court because he's too stupid to talk, that he doesn't write his own, you know, this this um, rumor that he doesn't write his own opinions and that it's a kind of racism that bothers him a great deal but in, instead of like his response to it isn't like these guys are assholes and racists his response to it is well i hate affirmative action now because it's made people feel like look at me suspiciously and not respect me and my intellect and so there's this weird catch-22 we're reading the book like there's a part of me that resonated with the emotional response that he was having to it all and it really made me reflect on, you know, as a, law, a lawyer in law school, all you hear about is how he doesn't talk, he doesn't write, he doesn't speak, and the implication is clearly that he's not intelligent. And I can understand why somebody would be deeply bothered by it, and it made me feel a kind of empathy for him. Um, but, you know, it, it also helps you understand how we got to, you know, this uh, – how we got to this point. I mean, it's, it's kind of provide a cover, I guess is what I'm trying to say – for him and his actual very pointed political ideology and the very the idea that he has a lot of strong thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that have been coming through his jurisprudence and that basically we've been ignoring that and stereotyping him um, instead of doing the work to really understand who he is and where he comes from and where he's leading us uh, in the highest court of the land. And there's this real way that this sort of racist presumption that he doesn't have two brain cells to rub together is ultimately hurting us because we're doing a really poor job of understanding the ways in which he's dramatically affecting jurisprudence. Yeah, me, I, I, I never thought he was dumb. I thought he was intentionally cultivating that image, and I didn't realize that he wasn't. I thought he was trying to fly under the radar uh, for whatever whatever sinister agenda he had, but I had no idea what it was. 
and frankly, it was working because I didn't think much about him basically until, uh, you know, fairly recently. Like I, I was like, oh yeah, that guy's on the court. And um, mm-hmm. there's, I guess there's a few justices like that, that I, that you don't, you never really thought about all that often. Um, but at least not in recent years, but um, yeah, I mean, like I just, I never really um, like, I would not have had that kind of insight into the guy's motives. Even some of the things that, uh, you know, there's, there's a, uh, you know, an empathy that resonates. Uh, it's kind of like he said, the guy's also, a true believer. And even those things you empathize with that are very human, like in a sense, uh, you know, in many ways make him, um, you know, perhaps more dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, largely sure. because like he doesn't have those base motives uh, that, uh, that a common crook would that you could easily, you know, manipulate like a sociopath is predictable, mm. uh, but a zealot, not so much. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I love, I don't know how far you, you've gotten to the, into the book or whether you've been able to start or if it's even arrived yet, but, um, I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear what you think about it. Uh, the, the, the black nationalism stuff that one point he says, like the most, he, he gave an interview where he said the most liberal thing I ever did. So sorry, the most conservative thing I ever did in my youth was, um, vote for, um, oh, shit. what's his, what's his face? Um, who famously lost and the Democrats said that they can't ever do anything left again in the seventies. Um, oh, I know who you're talking about, but I'm having a brain fart I just, too. I'm now. just having a brain fart. Yeah. I'm also having a brain fart. Let's see what the McGovern. Thank you. The most conservative McGovern. thing I ever did in my youth was vote for McGovern. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really where he was. Um, and when you start to look through some of his like racial politics, uh, you know, Robin makes this argument that he, he's, he's considered to be like, you lump him in with all these colorblind conservatives, but he's not colorblind. He's aggressively race conscious and he injects race into decisions that have nothing to do with race because he perceives maybe in bad faith, maybe in good faith. I'm, I'm inclined to believe often in good faith. He perceives there to be a kind of patronizing implication to a lot of the laws that degrades black people as a race or because he sees that the impact of some zoning issue is actually going to disproportionately hurt black people and he's a separatist he's a black separatist he will shoot down policies that might socially benefit black people if he thinks it's going to encourage a long-term kind of like parasitic relationship you know kind of in his view of black people in a white society and when you look at it that way there's a kind of remarkable ideological consistency that starts to come through that is so different than the colleagues that he's deciding opinion, like he's deciding within these opinions that it almost, it's, it's crazy that that isn't more notable as we talk yeah. about the divisions on the court. And also really interesting to think whether or not liberals, you know, the left, the left, more left, the, you know, leading members of the court could ever kind of exploit that kind of um, black protectionism to get him to side with some of their opinions if they if they understood him and his motivations a little bit better. I don't know, it's 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 really it's it's weird stuff. He occupies a really weird third rail. Yeah, because there like there was a, there's a part in there where, you know, there's certain things that he sees that are very real mm-hmm. and that he's reacting to and like there was uh, at a certain point there was um uh in the episode you guys were talking about um uh, basically his reaction that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, uh, the stuff that occurred, like the, the removing segregation stuff, um, 
you know, kind of had, he heard a comment saying that, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas is ungrip as a guy who's ungrateful for, uh, blah, 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 all the, all the good things he received. And that confirmed to him, and he's very right in a sense, that there's a patronizing attitude behind that, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, this kind of liberal largesse, like we're giving mm-hmm. charity to these, uh, these poor barbarians so they can, uh, you know, have a better life than they did. But it's this kind of very patronizing attitude that he's reacting to that's very, very real and that is uh, mm-hmm. ex- extraordinarily present in the circles that he runs in, these kind of elite white liberal uh, overeducated circles, especially, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the Northeast, you know, if he's, he's surrounded by Ivy leaguers, uh, you know, this is kind of the, the sewer that he's swimming in. And, you know, I like, it's almost hard to blame him for, for turning that like insanely twisted and jaded, um, you know, and that's what so crazy. Like I, I was like, reading about him and like Heike agreeing with, <laughs> with his diagnosis, but just coming to a different conclusion. I think I said on the episode, it's like, sometimes you're reading what he's thinking and it's like, am I reading Clarence Thomas or am I reading Adolf Reed? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's remarkable. And I think about this when I think about folks like Kanye West and some of these other figures who like will come up with a good diagnosis or two and then take it in a really crazy direction. Even Donald Trump and a lot of Trump supporters, it's like, well, you're not wrong about X, Y, and Z. You're not wrong to have this critique of liberalism and the superficiality of it and the weaponized identity politics of it and the patronizing liberals and all of that. But like, why are you, what, what is this now, this leap that you've taken where the answer is, is, you know, but yeah, kind of politics is not actually for you either. Mm-hmm. It's very Shakespearean. Like, like people in that era, in Shakespeare's era were fascinated with characters uh, like, uh, well, in Marlowe's the, the Jew of Malta or uh, in, uh, in Shakespeare's, uh, what's the one with Iago? Um, um, uh, you know, the, the Moor. Yeah. That, uh, um, that, that, uh, that's and, uh, um, Othello. 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 Yeah. Sorry. I'm like, okay. Like they were fascinated by people that had this very, like these very honest grievances. They're, you know, very human. You empathize and identify with them that they suddenly take this step across a line into like mm-hmm. deviance and monstrosity and just do something horrifying. And that's kind Breaking of like, bad. that's what this character is. <laughs> yes, it, that's exactly right. That's, it, that's a very Shakespearean dynamic. And he kind of, he kind of has that effect that, uh, you know, like I said, I'm eager to start reading the book. I just got it. I got an ebook and, um, and I'm going to start reading it shortly, but, uh, you know, just the presentation that was, that was given there. I'm like, man, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know that I really, really should. Well, I'm excited uh, for you to read it. I'm excited for you to read it. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. I really enjoyed both reading the book and, um, talking to Corey and I look forward to having him back on in the future because, you know, he's written other things and is just a, a delight to talk to. And before I go, I wanted to say, like, I'm glad I've gotten in the habit of checking Rising on Monday mornings just in case you're there. <laughs> because this was a, a banger of a day today. And, uh, like, all, all the segments were awesome. And, uh, you know, actually, like, the, probably the one that's going to get the best reaction is the one I like the least which was uh, the one with, with Liz. But, uh, you know, cause she was she, she came in there cho- choosing violence. But <laughs> Well, look, you know what's funny? Um, not funny, but the I looked at the stats a little earlier today. 
And the the segment about the young man who was shot actually was doing surprisingly big numbers, which I did not expect from the rising audience. I'm looking at it now; it's at three hundred thousand views. Really? Yeah, that's the top. I wouldn't have expected that either of the day. Uh, and the the Fox Dominion story is also at one hundred fifty thousand, which is high. And I we haven't been talking about the Dominion story. You know, off the record, <laughs> I have been wondering, I've been kind of pushing back a little, like, I mean, like, I, I put it in the Slack all the time. Why don't we ever talk about Dominion? And I think there's a feeling that the audience is just not interested in anything that beats up on Fox or Trump or anything like that. But today, I think, was the first time we, I, I bring up Dominion all the time, but we haven't done, like, a full-on story on it, I don't think. Today's story was the first full-on story, and it's the second highest clip of the day so sometimes well, doing the right thing yeah they surprise <laughs> us and you know what i bet they'll pay attention now when you put it in the slack but uh, if you really want to piss off liz wolf doing a do a bad faith episode with victor picard wait someone else suggested this person that that was me oh that was you last was time. that last week yeah yeah because we follow each other on twitter but i read his books and they're wonderful and he has like uh, a whole presentation on right, uh, the importance of public, yeah, public funding of media, especially you know the demise of local journalism. That uh, you know he has a, a whole model that he's developed in that in that respect. Um, and uh, you know, you tell Liz to to call you back when she's uh, you know cut subsidies to big pharma and and. Uh, <sighs> And big ag, and then you can talk about the you know the ass white money that goes to NPR and doesn't even protect it from corporate influence, uh, and also her tax dollars don't fund spending. But you know, yeah, and the tote bag, the whole thing. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, look, Jonathan, thanks for listening. They're trying to convince me to do every Monday, and I am reluctant because I you gotta have a day off. I mean, like I don't, I don't do rising on Fridays either, and so. What they really want is to get back to a model where they can do rely on me and Robbie Monday through Thursday and then find co-hosts to do Friday the way it used to be back in the day with Ryan and Emily. Um, and, you know, there's a team there and they're working hard and I don't make it easy for them with them having to scramble for Monday people, especially now that Bati is gone. So I am because I want to be a team player. I'm inclined to want to play, but I also uh, don't want to choose violence. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I appreciate you listening, uh, Jonathan. And thank you for the suggestion. I'm going to actually write. I'm going to have a window open. It looks like Picard uh, Pickard followed me back. So I'm going to hop in his DMs as soon as I hung up from this. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Have Keep the faith, one. Jonathan. You too. Take care. Um, it looks like Bye. another first time with a pseudonym. Sorry, it's cutting off the end of your names. Can you unmute yourself, Sued? Pseudonymous 1000? And let us know what's on your mind tonight. You're with us, Pseudonymous. For those of you who are new, I do one person from the front of the line and then someone from randomly from the middle or end um, just to make sure that the people who are just quick on the, quick on the trigger don't always get priority in the queue. Pseudonymous, I don't know if you're intentionally taking yourself out or if you're messing up, unmuting yourself. Um, but if you get back in the queue, I will try you again. 
so let's go to G. G Diddy. What's on your mind tonight? Hey, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Oh, spectacular. Uh, okay, so the East, obviously the East Palestine issue is one of the more important issues, um, national issues, and, and, and I think you're right on to complain about the fact that no one's covering it. But even mm-hmm. when I think about uh, my thoughts on it, it actually, it, it, it's almost like, it's it feels like a, such an attack on the citizens, our fellow citizens that, it almost doesn't feel like a political matter. And so it's mm-hmm. it's almost like you kind of be so distressed, you don't know how to talk about it in political terms. It almost feels like, like, like unless you're talking about it from a, a law enforcement angle or, you know, or something beyond that, it's almost like you don't, you don't know how to, how to discuss such an issue. You know, a, a chemical, a chemical weapons attack has been launched uh, uh, on the citizens of Ohio and we're kind of just sitting around, you know, just watching it happen. And the media is just kind of ignoring it. So it's it's a little bit shell-shocked in a way. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I meant to cut you off. Oh, no, no, please do. When we were talking about this on Rising earlier in the scope of this crisis, I said that I was frankly glad that Republicans were uh, politicizing the crisis. I was glad that Trump went. I was glad that Tucker Carlson was doing radars on how terrible Pete Buttigieg was. Because at the end of the day, it was getting the people of East Palestine a lot of attention. And for the first you know, week, 10 days, two weeks, there was like no coverage of it at all. And now we're kind of living in the world where everyone stopped politicizing. It. And it's a shame that this country works this way. But it kind of feels like if you can't use at an event as a way to beat up on the other side, literally nobody cares about it. And as, as, as soon as this became like a messy, well, Republican, you know, governors and local officials were also at fault and, but also the EPA and Buttigieg and Biden and it's messy. And now everyone just kind of wants hands off that, that the people are suffering as a consequence. And remember when I talked to David Sirota about this, you know, a month or so ago, we talked about a rail safety bill. I think um, Rokana mentioned it as well when he was on the show about a month ago. And it's like, what's happening? <laughs> what's happening with that, that bill? And that was insufficient too. Remember, I was asking, I think, um, Rokana about whether or not it was going to address some of these substantive concerns about the brakes and the um, precision railroad Time, um, scheduling and some of the other long-standing issues, and it seemed like it wouldn't, but at least it was something. And I haven't heard anything at all about it in quite some time. And that's the thing. It's like, I almost, you know, a lot of times I feel like you get what you vote for, but it just seems so callous and, and cynical to, to kind of take that angle in this situation because it is right. such a serious situation. So it's like a, I'm of multiple minds of, uh, on the issue because you know, I don't think anybody deserves what took place. I don't, I don't think anybody who wants smaller government like, expected to have a chemical attack launched on them. And that's the, that's really the sad thing about it is that, you know, conservative people don't necessarily assume that people are this evil and this callous. And look, I was, res- yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 please. I, I think you're, you're, you're better than me. 
No, it's just that, no. <laughs> but I, I, I respect, like, when people say, and I've learned this kind of with my exchanges with Robbie as well, when people say there are dangers with big government, like, they're not wrong, right? Like, I'm not sitting here saying, like, I love government in the abstract. Like, I love cheese. <laughs> I love uh, flowers. I love tequila. I love reality TV. Like, there are things that I love because of what they are. Government isn't one of them. But I appreciate that absent some pushback, absent some counterbalance, that the the free reign of the market is a, by design, destructive force that's both anti-democratic and, frankly, anti-human being. It's explicit desires. And this is what we were getting to with that episode with my corporate law professor, right? The explicit purpose of corporations are to increase shareholder value, not to make you happy, not to keep jobs in America, not to keep the air clean, not to clean up uh, train derailments, not to avoid catastrophes, but to maximize profit to shareholders. And in fact, if their boards do not maximize um, profit to shareholders, then they can be liable, they're not liable for like killing you probably. Look at what happened with Chevron and the Amazon. But they definitely will be liable to their shareholders if they don't maximize profit. And so there needs to be something that gets in between them and the people. And there needs to be limits on corporate power. And the best thing we've come up with is this idea of a democracy where we can at least have some control over the government and checks and balances ostensibly over the government in a way that we can't have over corporations because we are not shareholders. Now, have corporations done their darndest to undermine our democracy, to buy our democracy, to prevent our, our votes from having as much power because of the influence of money in politics? Yes. Is the government often corrupt? Yes. But it's largely corrupt because of the same private enterprises, right? Because of those corporations. So to throw your hands up like so many conservatives do and say, well, the government is corrupt, so let's get rid of it. It's like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not even disputing that the government is corrupt, but you think the situation is going to get worse when you fully give the people who are corrupting the government what they want, which is free reign? And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this play out in East Palestine. As much as you think that big government is the problem, you know, and the EPA is messing up in East Palestine, right? But is the solution to have nothing and nobody, no EPA? At least when we have a story right now where like the EPA is not doing its job right and they're not using the correct tools to measure the air quality, well, there's this idea that ostensibly there can be some accountability where we can say, oh, my God, someone needs to be fired. Heads need to roll. Joe Biden, what are you doing? Fix your EPA. If it's not the EPA, if it's Norfolk Southern, which who, who has also been effing up and not conducting right, the correct tests and not compensating people the way they should and not cleaning up the way that they should have been doing, then what's our recourse? Just to be mad online? And well, I mean, the thing is, a, a government that's working on on our behalf is is not a problem if it gets um, more influential, more powerful in our lives. But the problem is when the government's already corrupted, then it becoming more influential and more powerful and giving more control of our lives only makes it a more pernicious force. I mean, I think the greatest um, kind of counterbalance to corporate power is the power of the labor. And what, mm -hmm. is, what is the greatest enemy of the labor when it comes to uh, real worker strikes? The government, you know, in particular, a Democratic president, 
a Democrat president. Well, I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't say the greatest enemy to labor is the government and the Democratic president. I think the greatest enemy to labor is, again, the corporations who see labor as standing between them and their profit. So they have bought government. And I got to say, starting with the Republican Party, the Republican Party doesn't even pretend to have any labor interest. And yet you'd be hard pressed to find a union in America that's maybe not a cop union that gives to Republican candidates or predominantly gives to Republican candidates. But that's what's so sad is that Republicans being worse than Democrats doesn't help labor very much when Democrats are also bad. So you're completely right about that. But you know, I think it is it is important to recognize that there's a sense of scale here. And that, you know, what should have happened when Biden crushed the rail strike was to say, Biden, you're not living up to your values as a Democrat and the Democrats are the party of labor. What the hell are you doing? But instead of that, what we got was, I'm sorry, progressives, AOC, a bunch of folks running cover for Biden and saying, oh, we had to do this This is what the rail unions wanted us to do. And I would, you know, I I, want to get into maybe in an interview I'm going to do later this week. The interview that AOC just did with David Sirota last week where he was able to ask her some questions about this stuff and give what I thought were some pretty unsatisfactory answers um, about why she um, voted for uh, crushing the real strike and why the Democratic Party is not willing to – it doesn't seem to have anybody in it except for Rashida Tlaib and I think uh, Bernie Sanders over in the Senate who are willing to stand up for what used to be bedrock Democratic Party values. Yeah, I mean, shout out to, to uh, Rashida Tlaib, really kind of making the the squad look good lately when it comes to not just this issue, but obviously um, getting our our um, I, I forget this this the famous spy's name. Why why do I forget his name all of a sudden? The spy. Decision. Yeah, the spy who um oh my goodness, why 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 do I forget his name? The spy who did what? Who released um. The the war footage, the Iraq war footage of the oh no, no, yeah, Assange, yeah, so Julian Assange. Mm-hmm. Why did I? Yeah, her kind of just standing up for him. Mm-hmm. Rare amongst the Democrats, so she's she's been doing great. But to loop in this issue, I think politically, the um, I think if this issue does, um, the East Palestine issue does kind of get a little bit more press. I think it actually helps, um, RFK Jr. Because I think with his bone mm. meter, particularly in this area, I think this is the, right, the, the kind of thing that would actually put him, um, raise his stock on just the merits alone. Because when if this is actually an issue that's like a big, major platform issue, there's no one who's going to be on stage who's going to have better bona fides on this type of malfeasance than, um, than an RFK Jr., and it would take away from the like, oh, he's anti-vaxxer. It'll, it'll go to like, he's like an environmental crusader, and it'll change the change the narrative. Which is a, another reason why I think maybe this is not an issue that's you know getting the type of press that it wants because it would really help RFK Jr. politically if this is foregrounded in a way that it should be. Because you think of another politician yeah. who really can step into yeah. this battlefield in a legitimate way. I wish I, I need to learn more about. What is it? This um, he's suing on behalf of the folks um, in East Palestine. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the contours of that are, but I know that people have said that he's been a, in particular an advocate for people there, and obviously he was an environmental lawyer and all of that. So um, I, I agree with you. I think that for anybody, if they decided to make East Palestine an issue in their campaign, it could do wonders. And it's cr- wild to me. 
that Biden doesn't see that lane and still doesn't seem to have shown any interest that, you know, Marianne, I believe did go or was planning to go. I I believe she did go, but you know, I I guess it's not great that we didn't hear very much about it. Um, And that basically everyone in, in the race, you know, whatever, Nikki Haley, do your thing. Everybody should be trying to get a piece of that. There there should be a a fight over who can do the most for the citizens of East Palestine. And of course the citizens of Flint and the citizens of Jackson, Mississippi and all the other places in America that are enduring these kind of um, environmental and infrastructural crises. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's right on. And also just one last thing regarding the second amendment. Um, I understand your, concerns regarding the second amendment i think that that situation that happened with that 17 year old boy is a perfect example of why you know guns 16. in the hands of oh 16 yeah. uh, uh guns in the hands of um, highly reckless and well i mean this is an old man so it's like almost like he's probably doddering as well hands guns in the hands of people like that um sort of raise the the perception of the danger of the of the tool itself but one thing that people have to understand when they're talking about the second amendment is that it's not something that is like granted to the citizens by the government. The right to own guns is something that's innate and that the second amendment simply delineates the government's, um, it simply restricts the government's right to kind of uh, um, mitigate our, you know, God given right to have firearms. So it's not like they, they're doing us a favor by allowing us to have I think it's that's not like a the, God-given right. Well, it's a constitutional right. And the Constitution says you can have a well-regulated militia, well-regulated, yeah. well-regulated. And yeah. there are a lot of rights in the Bill of Rights that are not absolute, including the First Amendment. We have defamation laws. We have laws against inciting violence. You have laws against threatening people. There are, there are, you can curb speech in private contexts and private institutions outside of the public square. There are a lot of things you can do. And we understand this in every other context, but somehow we pretend that the Second Amendment is the only amendment in the Bill of Rights that has this absolute it was both read both read absolutely and in which we read out the words regu- well regulated when we talk about it. So I don't, I'm not trying to be cavalier about the value of the Second Amendment. I feel very strongly that much of the strong gun legislation that we have is because of fear of black radicalism and the fear that certain people shouldn't have guns. But that being said, that less living in a country where legal gun owners like Philando Castile can get shot in their cars doing everything right, whereas white homeowners are out here gunning down people in their driveways, like the push to have more expansive readings of the second amendment are clearly benefiting some populations and not others. And I don't know what to do about that inequity, but it seems to me that just trying to continue to push the envelope isn't actually expanding the rights and privileges of the more marginalized people in our society. And it is in fact making them increasingly victimized. So it's, it's a tough one. And I'm, I'm really not one to be cavalier about the right to bear arms. I personally have thought very strongly about getting a gun license and learning how to handle myself as late stage capitalism gets wild out here. You see, but, you see how these, how TikTok has these kids wilding out in the streets. Can you imagine being unarmed with like, you know, a hundred, you know, savage teenagers running around tearing your community up? 
I mean, to be honest, I don't work. find myself afraid of a hundred uh, rabid teenagers. The threat that I face more uh, acutely is from a militarized police force and that, that is empowering a state that is enacting policies that are stripping wealth from communities, asset forfeiture and white collar crime are the most significant types of, of theft that happen in this country. And those actions are empowered by an armed state militia. And I just think we have to keep that sort of thing in perspective. I'm not trying to minimize violent crime. I'm not trying to minimize the fear that people have in certain communities where there is a lot of crime. I'm not trying to minimize that at all, but I'm just asking people to ask the question whether more guns makes those communities safer or the ease of access of guns is exactly why there's so much crime in those communities or, or contributes to the effect or the, the perniciousness of crime in those communities. Yeah, well, just be careful what you ask for. I know you read um, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Yeah. If, you want, if you want another crime bill, you'll have to get ready for the sequel because that's exactly what you get. And so we have to also be careful to not, you know, add more laws that are, are just going to target, you know, basically, you know, law abiding people um, to actually just criminalize them for basically. Well, that's what happened to Philando Castile. That's what's happening right now. That's yeah. what happened to that Black Lives Matter guy who got killed by that vigilante who's now about to get pardoned by Greg Abbott in Texas, you know, like that's what's happening. So like, I'd love to hear a solution, but what, what the, when, when, what people are afraid of when they awfulize and say, Oh, well, if we get rid of guns at X, Y, and Z is going to happen. And that's literally what's happening. And those guns that everybody wants and thinks are going to keep us safe are the ones that are being used by gang members that are being used by white vigilantes that are being used by rogue cops. Like it's 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 just difficult for me to see how more and more and more in that direction is going to be helpful. I'm open to hearing it, but it's really difficult for me to see. No, I mean, I, like I said, I understand that. There's too much, there's too much gun crime, and, and make it it makes it hard to make the case for the positive the positives of owning guns because those are the guns are deterrent. So it's like you you never actually want to see the the manifestations of the positive impact of the Second Amendment because if you did, then there'd be a civil war. So you don't want to see that. The, the gun ownership in and of itself, it serves as a deterrent. So it's like you don't want to see, you don't want to see the other side of that. You don't want to, under, you don't want to see why it's important that all these guns are owned by the citizenry. You actually don't want to find out why it's important. Yeah. But Well, I always appreciate you calling in and giving your perspective, G. Okay. As God someone bless. from the other side of the, the, other side of the aisle. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you. Right back at you. Keep the faith. All right, definitely. All right. Bye-bye. Lysol, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Bree. Howdy, howdy. What are you thinking about this evening? I am thinking about ableism this, e- this evening. Okie doke. Hit me. Um, so it's something, you know, I kind of have come to recently between learning about stuff with COVID and also reconnecting with an old friend of mine who has uh, MECFS. And the, the people I follow on Twitter that are and do like disability politics are absolutely fucking crushing it right now on both COVID and trans stuff. Hmm. You, you saw the Missouri bill where they're going to say the people that are autistic have depression or quote unquote social media addiction can't don't have access to healthcare. So I saw a really bad Missouri bill, but then I saw Aaron tweeting about how a lot of it got gutted. 
So did that part get gutted too, or is that bad stuff still in there? Oh, I haven't seen an update. I was I was following this yesterday. So if Aaron has new information, it's just you know it's. I mean, I feel like with a lot of this type of stuff, they go as far as they can and they pull back when they have to. But um, this you know between you know yeah leaving the clinically vulnerable kind of like out to dry on COVID and then all the anti-trans stuff, it feels like the two most um, two most obvious ways that people who are pushing kind of like more of an author- authoritarian and fascist state. Um, are making their way out. And it feels like, honestly, on the left, there's a big blind spot when it comes to COVID and when it comes to uh, dis- ableism and stuff. Yeah, so this Montana, it's, you said Mo- the Montana one, right? No, I was talking about the Missouri one. Oh, Missouri. Okay, sorry, my bad. The one that got gutted was this Montana one. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't seen much about that one. But go ahead. I'm sorry I mean to cut you off. Oh, I don't think you cut me off. It was just kind of the, the same type of thing where they're, you know, they're trying to, like, link being trans to itself, being a mental illness, and just kind of like finding ways to um, marginalize people through disabilities. Also, it's a very intersectional thing. I think it's something like one in four black people are considered disabled. One in, uh, or no, one in five black people, one in four uh, indigenous people are considered disabled. So when it comes down to the people who are most vulnerable, you know, you know, I mean, my, 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 my big soapbox is people should wear masks on public transit in grocery stores and in healthcare facilities. So the clinically vulnerable can access stuff. Yeah, look, I, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I do still wear masks in, you know, Ubers and the grocery store and those kind of things. It's also true that, like, I'm indoor dining, <laughs> obviously without a mask, because what's the point? Um, I'm eating. And there is some inconsistency there, although I do think, you know, increasing your odds or decreasing your odds by doing it where it's like the higher traffic areas and where people can't guard against you is meaningful. Um, I, you know, what would you, when you say that you think the left has um, kind of dropped this issue, do you mean generally speaking, Joe Biden deciding that COVID is over and doing the Medicaid kickoff and, and all of that? Or do you mean on a kind of a messaging front, you think that no one's really talking about long COVID uh, and the value of masking, et cetera, anymore? I think that um, I think that COVID was a great opportunity for um, really kind of like building a sense of solidarity. I remember at one point you were talking about like, you know, like what if like people just like wear something and they're like new, like, oh, you're also wearing that kerchief. That means you support mm-hmm. Medicare for all, something like that. And it's kind of like, well, that was we had it. It was called the mask in the very early days when everybody was masking, except for the people who were absolute assholes. It was a sense of solidarity. And it really is kind of one of those things where people, you know, they're getting nonstop published uh, stuff from the New York Times telling them that people are tired of masking, even though polls don't show that type of stuff. And, um, you know, the people will put on masks if they see other people masking. It was interesting once it got kind of like below the 50 percent threshold on the bus. That was really like the change. As soon as you weren't like the asshole on the bus, you're like, oh, I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah, I mean, I do think that. I would like to think of masking as a solidaristic gesture, but I, I frankly think that from the beginning, it was not seen as look at all that we're pulling together doing this thing. It was seen as a demonstration that, you know, I'm like one of the good guys who knows the science against the bad guys who don't, which is not how I would have liked it to have played out. I would have liked it to actually have been not a partisan, um, uh, virtue signal 
Y- you know, like I, I would have liked for everyone to have wanted to do it because we pulled together actually as an American community and that we never, we just never got, we just never got there uh, for reasons. I would have liked to have seen high quality masks di- uh, distributed. I would have liked to have seen mask fittings in public locations in the same way that we had vaccines, you know, set up at hospitals and schools and things. I, you know, I would have, I would have liked to have seen food distributed to people when we were in lockdown the way they did in China and some other parts of the world. I would have liked to have seen pe- people seeing COVID measures as not being abandoned to themselves, each for their own, but a exercise in what the government actually could do for you and how it could support you in you doing your part to stay home and stop the spread. And we never saw that. And we also saw a bunch of policies that weren't very well tailored to actually preventing the spread of the disease and a, um, I would say, a lack of limberness in readjusting policies once it became clear through no fault of anybody's, you know, but it became clear eventually that vaccines didn't have the effect that we had hoped, that they didn't have the effect on transmission that we had hoped, especially with the later strains. And that policy wasn't very dexterous in changing to correct that reality, which created more distrust in the government, in the CDC, and future policies down the line. And now it feels like, God forbid, another pandemic or one that even was more deadly came down the pike, that there's absolutely no appetite, frankly, among Democrats or Republicans, to actually do anything at all until there was a pile of bodies the size of the Empire State Building because the, the trust is so low. I mean, I also feel like you can you can really sell it as a class issue because, you know, the the, the percentage of people that don't have access to uh, like I, I forget what the, the con- it was a big contrast between people who actually had a primary care physician and people who didn't in terms mm-hmm. of whether the vaccine and in terms of whether or not they survived if they got infected. And I feel like there's, you know, like the, the part about like, you know, the, the one thing about the national emergency that got uh, ending that got pressed was what? 15 million people getting kicked off Medicaid, mm-hmm. you know? It's there's very much there's like, you know, there's a small group of people that are worth us standing up for, I feel. And missing out on that really makes it harder because I I feel like it's like especially in, you know, like um, so I went to the first workers strike back thing and it was um, it was going to be at a library. And having never been to the library, I figured it was like a rally. I would be like outdoors. And instead it was indoors and it was a small room and maybe like a little over half the people were masking. Mm. And I realized after I'd been there, like, this is really just like kind of like a socialist alternative meeting. meeting. And then I started thinking about how much sick time I have. And I started thinking about, is it really, you know, is it worth it for me to risk my health to be in a room with a bunch of people that obviously don't care about whether or not other people get COVID? And a lot mm. of it is, you know, the, our, op- our options have been exhausted. Nobody gets paid sick leave. Like, people are forced to kind of just like roll the dice with COVID. And I'm totally rolling the dice too. Like, I, you know, I perform mm. once in a while unmasked because I have my... I'm wearing makeup and they're throwing up a mask and use for makeup. Like I'm going mm-hmm. to Hawaii next week. Like I'm just not rolling the dice as many times as everybody else. Yeah. But I'm still rolling the dice. What do you think about the um, one-way masking arguments? That a well-fitted mask basically, you know, it gives you, you know, well-fitted high-quality mask is offering a level of protection that, again, you get to a place where there's the, the risk-reward of requiring others to, I mean, what people do out of the kindness of their heart is one thing, 
but kind of requiring other people to wear them in a, in a mandate sort of way um, isn't justified given the efficacy of a one-way mask. I mean, how do you feel about that? I'm not entirely sure where the science is on that. I mean, I, I agree one-way masking isn't as great as two-way masking because two-way masking doesn't, or one-way masking doesn't stop one person who has COVID from getting a bunch of COVID and leaving in the room for everybody else to walk through. Um, right, but, but if you are wearing the mask, I mean, it's, yeah, but if you are wearing the mask, is it, what do you, I mean, what do you make of that? Because some people would say, well, you know, we can't make other people mask, but one-way masking is still a good way for you to protect yourself. I mean, I, I, I thought who often is the person who has to unmask in a group because I'm talking like I'm the speaker or, you know, I'm doing rising until rising. I had no exposure because I never left my house and I didn't have a day job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, And one of my biggest concerns when starting rising was like, Oh, I'm, I just went two years, never seeing anybody. And now I'm going to have to go into an office three days a week. And I'm forced to be unmasked because I'm on air. Whereas my my makeup artist, for instance, is very COVID conscious because she has a a family member who's immunocompromised, and I've literally never seen her face. Well, have you been following Hollywood getting rid of its COVID restrictions? No, because they were they were doing so well, and none of them were getting COVID. Yeah, they had. I mean, it was. I mean, that's the, the same thing with the NBA going on strike during the George Floyd protests. Was kind of like when a union has that many people that are all worth tens of millions of dollars like stuff happens hollywood had like a zone system where like zone one was the actors zone two was like literally anybody who ever to touch the actors and zone three and beyond that were not allowed within like 30 feet of like woody harrelson or whatever mm-hmm. and, um yeah there's it's it was ironic because they you know just just like stuff like the state of the union like these big productions so much effort is put to make sure nobody gets covid so that they can put on a production where it looks like nobody's worried about covid I like mean, right, so are you, right. are, are you, I mean, it sounds like you, I mean, you have a kind of cynical view of why it is that they had such good COVID protocols, but the, at the and I, and I think that's probably right. But at the end of the day, are you, are you lamenting that they did that, that, that they had such strict COVID po- protocols? Do you think there was something dishonest about having strict pro- COVID protocols so that they could be unmasked and I guess have the illusion that COVID wasn't extant? No, no, no. I, I, I support those. I support those um, those standards. I mean, I don't know the particulars about why that particular system works, but like you said, it was it was doing a pretty good job. Um, mm-hmm. You weren't about it. Uh, the have you ever seen the hashtag Davos safe? Yeah, they had like uh, blue lights or red, whatever, like UV lights and all these, and then like crazy ventilators and you know all kinds of protections for them. And it's just, it is very interesting to me that the same people who are very critical of Bill Gates because they think he's doing all this self-interested stuff and like selling his vaccine and promoting, promoting his like nasal vaccine because he's invested in it and all of the stuff, which I think is true, but they also don't look at how he's living his life and protecting himself and thinking, oh, well, here's the richest man, one of the richest men in the world doing X, Y, and Z. Maybe I should consider whether it's in my best interest to also do X, Y, and Z. It is, it is, it, I've said this on rising. It is, we don't talk about that kind of COVID story that much anymore, but it always struck me as very odd. I think there was this really, you know, healthy skepticism about whether or not policy was being driven at times by the financial motives of people who are invested in the technology. And at the same time, an unwillingness to ask whether or not 
policy was sometimes being driven by economic factors in terms of people wanting to reopen and conservatives being, you know, arguably more invested in, you know, economic factors than public health factors. And that these push and pulls were happening on every side of the aisle. And that the consensus that we have right now that COVID is over is because we live in a corporate duopoly, not because of any public health reality. And the interventions that were proposed were because of economics and not because of what the public health protocol would demand, you know? So I, I, I don't know. It did that aspect of it did seem inconsistent to me, even though I agreed with parts of what kind of my conservative cohorts on the show would be arguing about the bad faith of the pharmaceutical actors or some of the CDC actors, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so, so me personally, it feels like um, Biden's COVID policy just kind of slowly morphed into uh, Trump's policy. Even, even mm-hmm. down to the, they haven't named a new, um, they haven't named a new variant since Omicron because mm-hmm. they're trying to pretend like there aren't new variants, even though there are new variants and like, how you want to name them and how you like why you want to decide is like one thing, but like just from a from a PR perspective, when you have like Ron Klain running the White House, mm-hmm. it's um, and then um, you know about the Great Barrington Declaration, mm-hmm. you know guys like Vinay Prasad. I'm Jay. I can't pronounce his last name. It's like B H A with some G's and some T's. He he, he works in an unofficial context, I think for for the for the CDC or no for for Biden himself. Um, is one of the people that pushed that. And like from the, from the very beginning, they're like, we don't want to go overboard and do too many productions because for like three months there, the United States had a social safety net mm-hmm. to June, 2020. And then a bunch of people got in the streets because there was also a critical mass of unemployed people and they cut off the benefits at the end of July mm-hmm. or at least the boost that was, le- that was keeping people from living in poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so my, my, my big push on that is a death panel and then Imani Barberin, also known as Crutches and Spice on TikTok. Both of them are really killing it with disability stuff right now. And I feel like there's a lot to talk about between, if you don't even want to touch COVID, there's a lot to talk about just with the trans issue. Yeah, I've definitely been following Imani and second those recommendations. Thank you, Lysol. I appreciate you calling in. Yeah, for sure. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Let's go to... Uh, Sasha, lots of cats in the chat today. My goodness. Sasha, what's on your mind tonight? Um, hey, um, one second. I need to take my headphones off. Okay. I also want to throw out there that if anyone wants to talk about, uh, the love is blind reunion, I'm also game to talk about that. Um, can you hear me? I can loud and clear. Cool. Um, so I meant to call in to talk about like the trans stuff, um, Mm -hmm. and kind of like about, I guess, maybe organizing and like government infrastructure overall, Mm -hmm. but just in terms of like the stuff with like Leah Thomas, I just did some quick Googling, Mm -hmm. um, when people were talking about it and it just seems like from what I what I looked at, that she was only ranked low in men's sports when she started transitioning. And before that, she was ranked pretty high. And so to me, that suggests 
that a lot of the narrative around like trans women probably having advantages might be, at least in terms of like using her as an example, seems to be a bit overblown. Um, again, I just did quick Googling, so I may not be 100% right about any of that, but I also found an article talking about research that somebody did saying that like, um, their, their finding was that maybe after one year, of transitioning that maybe they weren't like, they still had an advantage, but then after about two years, they were basically on par with cis, cis women. Um, and so I just want to add that and just say that like, I don't think the science is as like, uh, how do you say, um, clear, you know, as people say it is, especially when people were talking about that. I don't feel like people were naming or mentioning like, at least like how long people have been transitioning because it does take a while for, you know, everything to change and take full effect. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to add that and like trouble um, that a bit. So it looks like, it looks like I'm reading this article that says Thomas's best time in the men's division um, was 47 15. And Oh, sorry. Those are different events. Okay. Wait a minute. So in the 500 yard freestyle, um, during the last season in the NCAA, uh, Leah Thomas competed in the men's division in 2018-2019. There she ranked 554th in the 200-yard freestyle. She's now fifth in the event this year, um, competing with women. L further in the 500-yard freestyle, Thomas was 65th in the country. Now she's ranked first place in the event this year. Finally, in the 1650 freestyle, she is now eighth in the nation as opposed to 32nd in the men's division. Now, even if it were the case that she was, you know, number one in the men's division and then also number one in the women's division, you know, competitive both in the men's and the women's division. Help me understand, like, I, it's not clear to me that how that changes an argument about her not having a, a competitive advantage. Again, like I was saying, I just did quick Googling. I don't mm -hmm. know everything. But, but even, like, if, even if you're completely right, even if you're, you're right that, let's say she was number one in the men's division and then also number one in the women's division. Or number one in the women, men's division and number three in the women's division. Well, what I'm saying is that, like like her like ranking only dropped when she started hormones. And so what I'm saying is that like, I'm not saying that there's like no potentially advantage, but then like that mixed with the other article of saying that like scientists suggest say that maybe like after about two years, they're basically on par with cis women. I'm just suggesting that maybe like, it's not as finite as people are saying. And that's all. Yeah, look, I think there's totally, and I think we talked about this last time, that I think there's totally a metric that people can come up with. In the Olympics, Aaron pushed back against the Olympic standards being good ones, and I, you know, I don't know enough to really say. But the Olympics do have some standards by which they say, well, if you've been transitioning for this long and your hormone levels are X, Y, and Z or whatever it is, that you can compete, you know, in, in the division of your choosing. 
Um, mm. And that makes sense to me. But acknowledging that it would require some that, you know, that some kind of metrics are required, it is it is implicitly an acknowledgement that people who are assigned male at birth have an advantage and that the metrics have to be met in order to counteract that advantage. Right. Yeah, I'm not denying that. So then we get into this place where. I mean, I, I think we were saying this, I was saying this to Rika last time. It's like, it might be the case that whatever metrics people come up with that really make it fair, like sincerely fair, mean that very few trans women do get the opportunity to compete. That might be the case. It might not be the case. It might be that many, many get to compete. But I think when we're talking about this so often, there's this, you know, Biden's, I think that Biden maybe actually did land on a good place here where he says you can't have a blanket ban because a blanket ban would preclude the possibility of creating these kind of metrics that we're describing that try to get at fairness and equality here. But with the metrics in place, it still might be the case that constructively a lot of people get banned from competing. And the 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 the, the conversation maybe should be about how to make the most fair metrics as opposed to these, this kind of flat question of whether or not, you know, should we or should we not? Yes or no on trans women competing again in, in, in women's leagues, you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in total agreement with that. Like, I think, again, like, given, like, the, the time frame or whatever, like, I don't think, like, if you, you know, self-identify as a trans woman, like, that day, you should mm-hmm. be allowed to, you know, like go do. But that's kind of, I mean, that's not exactly what Erin said, but you know, she said that the standard should be good faith ID, which does seem to be ugh, who decides if it's good faith. Personally, I don't agree with that. Um, yeah. But again, like I'm saying, like based off of like what like doctors and like researchers have said, that mm-hmm. it does seem that like after a couple of years, that they are basically in the same level as like trans, I mean, as cis women. And so that's all I want to say about that. But I also want to say that like, I think like in terms of like trans issues in general, mm-hmm. like I feel like they're like hyper-focused on and like even talking about trans issues seems kind of like, like, I don't want to say it's like a dog whistle in and of itself to me, but like, I feel like when I like really explore Mm-hmm. A lot of like what these things come down to, there's something lo- like there's a conversation that's more interesting than whether or not people think someone is or isn't a woman, you know, like, mm-hmm. so just as an example, when people were talking about and I mean, I guess people still are talking about like, trans kids and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I was doing research on that a bit. And I discovered this, like trans historian named Jules Gill Peterson and like she has done like a lot of like research on like trans kids in history and like like you know like them like writing to doctors being like I'm trans like I was looking you up in the library and like learned about trans this trans that and I'm writing you to say like I want this surgery or whatever mm-hmm. and they like tangentially mention like that you know like well they couldn't because like they're kids and like they need parents like consent Mm -hmm. or supervision but they were like there's something there about like children's rights and like agency that like isn't being like interrogated or like they didn't have time to 
And like, when they like, just listening from them talking and like exploring these things more, um, to me, like, again, like the, the rights of like children and like their agency and like what they can choose to do with their bodies and stuff to an extent, to me, seems like a more interesting conversation than like bickering about whether or not kids are being trans, if that makes sense. And I remember just as an example, like when I was younger doing organizing, mm-hmm. like as like in high school, there was a case here in like Connecticut where this trans girl was like put in like a boys like juvenile facility. And like part of the issue with that was like, obviously like, well, she's trans. So like that is fucked up, but more so like she was like a ward of the state like through DCF, they mm-hmm. like through some rule or like law or whatever, they could just transfer wards of the state into prisons without charging them. And to me, that was like, that, like that just like, like from listening to her talk, like that triggered like that memory in me, like, because I mm-hmm. had been like, I did that like a, when I was a kid and I don't, I didn't really like, I kind of blocked it out because it was like kind of fucked up, I guess. Um, But, like, just thinking about that in terms of, like, relationship to, like, the type of, like, like, the way that, like, kids and, like, wards of the state, I guess, um, to an extent, like, their rights and, like, how they get treated, to me, seems more interesting, um, if that makes sense. Like, the way that these conversations mm -hmm. ducktail and the things that I think would be, like, more useful conversations. Well... I mean, I, I certainly think it's interesting. I, uh, from a political perspective, as someone who does, you know, a lot of, the, you know, my job, my professional work, because I have certain political goals, I don't know that that is a Pandora's box that I'm especially eager to open, I got to say. From an academic perspective, sure. From a political perspective, Um, kid, you know, the reason why the Republicans have gotten so much traction with trans issues is because they can make a big fuss about trans children. They they have what about the children their way into all of this. If they were in the realm of adults, I don't think they would get, have gotten nearly as far. No one gives a shit. No one thinks your trans, your drag show is an issue. We all, you know, RuPaul is an American icon, like no one cares. But when it comes to kids, they can weaponize the idea of kids and irreversible surgeries and mutilation and what if they change their mind. And people are very sensitive about their kids. You saw what happened with Bethany Mandel and in the whole woke conversation, like people, people just get real crazy about their kids. Yes. But like kids as property not kids as like living beings sure and i think that all of that is like a really legitimate area of exploration i think it's really tough and a really tough ethical i i don't know what to think about that but because i think most people don't know what to think about that except for that they think very strongly that they should have uh, a right to control how they raise their kids and what they keep their kids quote unquote safe from politically i gotta save me personally i 
don't want to go down there. I will not be having that conversation. I don't want to be having this trans conversation, but it's being thrust upon me because Republicans have made a political issue of it. And I, I host a show where I don't get to pick all the topics um, on rising, but I don't think it's especially helpful to trans people who are trying to defend themselves against a whole bunch of other very substantive attacks and all of this legislation that there are these lingering issues like trans women in sports that frankly are some of the lesser, the least sympathetic issues for trans people who are trying to guard against other significant infringements on their ability to live their lives, including adult trans people. Right. And I feel like it's a distraction, like largely because like, and a lot of the ways that people talk about like, and like people, when I wouldn't, I obviously some people are transphobic, but a lot of people just make, use transphobic talking points without realizing it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, in terms of like stuff like that, like like sports and stuff and like listening to people talk, it's like a lot of like what y'all are saying about like medicalization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like trans people are already having these conversations and like y'all aren't privy to that to mm-hmm. some extent because y'all aren't engaging with these people and like it's kind of like and again i'm speaking from my perspective and my experience for me Mm -hmm. personally it is tedious and like boring because it's just like there's like i'm i'm personally already there and i know that's kind of unfair but like you know like i feel like there's there's other stuff that to me like is really interesting and like like worth exploring and like i think people like are stuck on like trans stuff in a way that like they shouldn't be and like using it um you know like a lot of like trans issues are like issues of healthcare, and like like you said like it's not like about sports like specifically like it's a really my uh minor issue but like a lot of times like trans people have to like then like position themselves as like pro medicalization or like defending like you know, like these medical procedures in ways that they otherwise wouldn't because like, that's kind of like how they're being like, that's kind of where they're, you know, like they're backed into a corner. And so like, instead of being able to like navigate, like, yes, like the healthcare system is fucked up and the like the things that they do to us is fucked up, you know, like they're, they're like navigating, like, or I guess we are navigating like, um, having to like def- defend our right to like access these things and like the co- the part the part of the conversation where it's just like but also like i want more or like they need to do this or like this would be better it never gets we never get to that point you know well i will say i, I think that the conversation we had on thursday about these issues felt very productive in part because not that I was asking people how they identify, but it seemed like there were a significant number of trans people in the chat who are offering much more nuanced perspectives and a um, some some personal um, perspectives that made a lot of the you know that felt a lot more common sense than the way the discussion is being had. So I don't know how folks feel in the trans community about how these issues are being represented in the mainstream. I'm obviously not here to tell anybody how to run their own movement, but it does seem to me that it could be going better. Yeah. Uh, and 
Yeah, and I don't want this to sound. I'm not like trying to come for you. Like I appreciated like the conversations and like how you talked about everything. I'm just like, I'm just speaking. I'm just like thinking out loud and like sharing my experience. Um, like when BK came on, like I like I was I identified a lot with their experience and like again like the way that like people like the way that doctors treat you when like you're coming in for like like trying to like get like gender affirming care. ABK but, was was saying right that they had their um they had a, a hysterectomy, right? Mm-hmm. And that they wanted um hormone hormones to deal with not having, you know, hormones. Um and your options are you know estrogen or testosterone and doctors were inclined to give them estrogen even though they felt that they would tolerate testosterone better and the side effects weren't as bad. But in order to get testosterone, you had to, you know, they had to say that they identified as male, even though they didn't really, right. you know, in that traditional, oh, I, I grew up feeling like I was in the wrong body sort of way. Right. Which is like, like not a lot of or most people's experience, you know, or like, you know, like people are nuanced and different. And mm-hmm. so like a lot of people are just like. Oh, like, I think, like, again, like, there's, like, this narrative, like, yeah, I'm born in the wrong body, or, like, um, I was, like, bullied and harassed, and da 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 X, Y, and Z, and it's, like, no, maybe, like, there are lots of people who just, like, grew up with people who accepted them as who they were, and, like, they didn't have all, like, the anxiety and issues, like, they were just, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm just a woman, and they experienced their, or, like, I'm just a man, and they experienced their lives up until the point as that, until other people you know, troubled that or like got on their case about like who they should think they are, you know? Um, And again, like, I think with my experience and like, like I felt like, yeah, like I felt like personally, like they did that the, I don't think that the, the medical professionals were very competent. And so personally, like, as I experienced it, I, I did a lot of my own research before I did anything but like mm-hmm. again i feel like because like the mainstream conversation is about like you know like because the mainstream conversation positions people in like the trans people in this like uh guarded and like against the wall space mm-hmm. it's hard to like have that conversation to where it's like okay like actually yes like the way that this care is happening is kind of frustrating. No, I get it. I get it. Cause this is what I was saying on the last, I mean, not, I'm not saying that I'm like, I'm also feeling like trans people. No, I, I don't mean like that. But when, when I was having the, this, trying to have this conversation with one of my guest co-hosts last week, because she was so, because she used words that I was triggered by, I won't say it was her fault, but I was triggered by the words coming out of her mouth. I was like, I felt like my back was up against the wall and I was like refusing to agree with anything that she said. And I was contributing to the irrationality and and the stuckness of that argument. Right. I was, I was like not willing to be flexible because I just felt like she was a bad faith actor. I was triggered by what she was saying and I didn't want to have it. And I completely understand why, you know, if you're trans engaging in this debate when, you know, there's like literal hundreds of bills attacking you that you don't, you might not want to concede any ground, but my observation is like, there are only like, like 2% of arguments that are being made by conservatives that are like have legitimacy. And one of them is in the area of trans women in sports. 
and maybe arguably, and we haven't gotten this much into it, so I don't want to make claims that are too strong. I'd, I'd prefer to talk it through with members of this community more, but also in some of the, the um, advice that's being given to young people and whether or not there is a world where people, you know, the goal should be less feeling gender conformity. Like are people being forced to choose one or one of two expressions in a gender binary and then getting, um, you know, affirming care to push them in one of the two binary directions versus genuinely having a world where people feel comfortable being non-binary and not conforming and being quote unquote, biologically male or biologically female, but expressing themselves in a different way without it needing necessarily to result in the kind of traditional affirming care absent the dysmorphia that would indicate that they needed that kind of care. Do you know what I mean? Right. So outside of those kind of narrow contexts, the Republicans don't have an argument. And so does that mean that there should be more focus on how to get us out of fighting those battles? Should there be some concessions made? Let's just stay with the women in sports issue. You know, so that we can say, okay, fine, you can't argue that with us anymore. Now defend you're wanting to ban drag shows or something that is much easier to win on. Or, as I asked in the last call-in, is that asking folks to concede too much? And certainly as a member of Not the Community, I, just, I don't feel like I'm in a place to be like, you guys should just give up talking about women's in sport, women in sports. But, like, I, I do, like, I just, I am also struck by the nuance that was in this conversation on the last call-in that just, I'm sure exists many, many places within the trans community, but I got to say, I see very little of in the broader discourse to the detriment, I think, of the trans community. Yeah, but I, I, my experience, though, is that that is very much like a terminally like online thing. Like, I feel like that's mostly like online conversations because when I'm talking to my friends mm-hmm. about these things, like all of like most of us, like my like core like friend group is like trans. Um, mm-hmm. And like, like Again, like, I feel like a lot of the critiques that people levy against these things, like, we have and, like, are, like, really, like, you know, snippy about um, in ways that, like, and you know, like, in the ways that, like, you you can have these certain conversations around other Black people that you wouldn't have in front of, mm-hmm. you know, like, white people. Um, but I feel like, um, again, because because of like how things are targeted and like, I personally don't feel like, I I guess I don't know fully what it would mean to concede. Like I I'm conceding. I would concede to the fact that like, I think yes, that there should be like, I guess maybe to some extent, like, I don't, I don't agree with like 100% 100 like good faith ID. I think the way that we do it now for the most part seems fair enough where it's just like, you kind of got to like, wait a year or two and then you can like go back into mm-hmm. sports um when like everything seems to be like you know your your body seems to be appropriate for like where you transitioned you what you transitioned to um but like yeah i don't know and so i with feel concessions, like so for example here's one that kind of came up the last time it can feel like it's difficult to have certain conversations because it can feel like making reference to, and I don't know what term would be the best and like people are tying themselves into knots to not use an offensive term, but recognizing something along the lines of sexual dimorphism, you know, 
if if someone says biological sex, then it's like, oh, but intersex people, and like, totally, totally. But how can we talk about the fact that we've divided sports along sex lines, whatever word you want to use for it? I generally don't think, again, like, I generally don't think people who aren't terminally online would have an issue having I, I like oh, a but real come conversation on. with that. I'm, come I'm, on. I, I'm speaking from my experience. But again, Sasha, like, you know that if I were to say, if I were to engage in a conversation and say, and, and casually be like, just without stumbling over my words, be like, okay, look, here's the issue with trans women in sports. We have decided to divide sports along sex, sex lines. So people like biological males and biological females have different sports. And as a consequence, Trans women, you know, because they were born born men, aren't able, you know, have a competitive advantage when they when they're competing in women's sports, and therefore we should have different standards for when trans women are able to compete so that they don't put cis women as a disadvantage. If I said something like that, like without moderating my language a little bit more than that, there are plenty of people that would presume from my use of the terms biological. Uh, sexual dimorphism, things like that, that I was a turf and that yes. I was my, my dis- the distinctions that I'm making between trans women and cis women are me invalidating the womanhood of trans women. Mm-hmm. We know that people have gotten caught up in that morass and some people are trying to invalidate trans women, but other people are just trying to figure out how to have a conversation that really is about sex, not gender, not about right. expression or identity, but genuinely sex and you get into these like round and abouts well there's no actual such thing as sex and there's more variation within sexes than without and what and that's how that's how matt walsh gets people to not be able to say what is a woman because what he really wants people to say is there's there's sexual dimorphism and the overwhelming majority of people are born identified as male or female and they can identify differently as they grow older but biologically a woman is blah 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 ovaries and mm-hmm. whatever x x and whatever generally generally speaking is a woman is right. is is a biological woman anyway you know what i mean yeah I but think- that come on, come on sasha you know that that's like a fraught that's a fraught no i'm not series i'm not of de- sentences i just said i'm not denying that like people may respond to that what i'm saying is that i think like good faith people and like people who like think about this like sincerely and like are like reasonable aren't thinking like that and i feel like there are people who you can have this conversation with and like again like when i have this conversation with like my trans friends and like trans people other trans people that i talk to that's like not how it goes like it's it's just like yeah like yeah i know I believe my you. biology um and like that's all like w- like trans people are painfully aware of their or maybe not so painfully aware of their biology, you know, like it's like they have to monitor it, you know, like you don't have you, you, you really don't have to explain to a trans person like what their biology is. They know. Right. And I, I completely <laughs> believe you. So what do you think has happened, Sasha? Why is it that it seems like I, I completely agree? I completely believe that 99 percent of trans people are completely reasonable and that it's terminally online people that are are kind of setting this weirdly high bar. Where, you, where they really are making the case that, you know, it's not enough to respect the identity and the womanhood of trans women. There has to be this almost denial of the reality that they are trans women and not cis women. That the, We admitted to those words and they're very useful, but there are some spaces, maybe it's just terminally online spaces, where 
there is this effort to kind of conflate, you know, like that what that the the validity of trans womanhood depends on like not saying out loud that they are in fact trans women. You know what I mean? Mm. You know, why is it that the only the looniest one percent, let's say, <laughs> or the most yeah. extreme one percent, let me be nicer, are running the show and running the um discourse and setting the standards for how things we can talk about. It, this, this feels a lot like the academics saying the ap- academics deciding what is appropriate language and like you get to this place where you have uh, like linguistic standards that are perceived as irritating and quote unquote woke and that are galvanizing to so many people. Yeah. I mean, I feel like again, I feel like the reason why like it's easier to like talk about those people is because like they they aren't being reasonable like and like you can't like uh, like it's not a flattering like depiction of like you know in the same way that they focus on like sports and like children it's because it's easier to target like that demographic and like make that and like blow that up than it is just like oh here are like historians and scientists and et cetera, et cetera, who are like but talking actually, about this that's the thing it's like so i'm you know i'm black and some there are some people, black people, who say dumb stuff that I don't like politically. You know, there's mm-hmm. a bunch of there's a bunch of these black libs right now that are mad because Bernie went on one of these programs today or yesterday with Jen Psaki and said something about working class people, and now they're all doing that thing that where they like to pretend that working class people aren't black people and that Bernie's a big racist, right? Yeah. Like that's all happening right now. And I spent so many years of my life, and I will probably get online at some point in the next two days and, and continue doing this. You know, calling out those kind of like neoliberal black journalist class folks for these bad faith arguments against Bernie Sanders. Cause I hate yeah. that they control the discourse and maybe it's just me and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not like beating out Soledad O'Brien, whatever in the discourse, but I'm trying. Cause I, I recognize that my interests aren't being well represented by them. Right. Why is it like, why is it, especially given the relatively small number of trans influencers that we have, like that there isn't like, is there is, are there voices who are out here trying to wrest control away? Like I saw somebody mention ContraPoints and I think that ContraPoints is great. But my recollection is that after she said some things that were like mildly pushing back against characterizations of Jesse single and mildly saying some stuff about how the mainstream social justice trans discourse wasn't chill, like cool with her that she, she got written off as like basically a turf. <laughs> And a bunch yeah. of trans people came for her neck. Yeah. And I I think to that point, like, I, I really have a hard time, like, like, making sense of all this. Because, like, in my mind, how I rationalize or, like, make sense of it is, like, like, people are going to do what they want to do. And, like, when people talk about, like, okay, like, like, transing the kids or, like, people, like, like, when you're talking about, like, the young people and, like, that discourse that people use and, like, how doctors and professionals and like parents may not be you know like having the best or like maybe like may not have the best interest of being that like like smart or like competent with their care of these children or young people like to me that's not a trans issue that's an issue of like neglect or Mm. like like you like you being an incompetent like doctor and then like to to funnel it in, like to me it's similar, I'm also black, but to me it's similar to when like people will talk about like, you know, like the like the issues, like they'll just like suddenly say like, 
oh, black people are like homophobic or like they mm-hmm. have this issue or that issue of like everybody's fucking homophobic or like, you know, like I'm sorry mm-hmm. I didn't mean to cuss, but like, you know, like there's like, I think people f- hyper-focus on like certain demographics and then use that as an excuse yeah. to like say, like, like black on black crime, like yeah. all crime is interracial. And to me, it feels similar. Yeah, I, like, I get that. You know, it's tough. And again, I don't want to go too far down this because I'm nobody's expert on what the actual like prevalence of bad medical like advice is in the trans space versus like generally speaking because like doctors be out here getting things wrong um and the medical profession is trash and we need medicare for all and all of those things um i think what ends up happening though is the argument that is being made is that we've had these pendulum swings from obviously you know trans people being stigmatized in the worst possible way and only getting like the tiniest bit of a break in the last, like maybe 10 years in terms of broader social acceptance. Right. And that as a consequence, there are some people who are doing a full pendulum swing in the other way and saying, well, like in, in light of how horrible it's been for trans people and how in light of how difficult it has been for them to get gender affirming care, I'm going to just like, fully indulge in the other direction and like say anybody who raises their hand and says i want it gets it you know and i don't think that's the reality right like i'm not i think that but that's the fear that because of greater accessibility and because of like let's say good well-meaning liberals who really really don't want to be part of the problem that there is maybe some overreaches that happen in the other direction and that like is it i understand why one wouldn't want to acknowledge that because overwhelmingly the experience is still, it's very difficult to get gender affirming care. It's very costly, even if you can access it. At the same time, it's like, I say this all the time with Jesse Single in these arguments. I feel like this issue an analogy is like people who lie about rape. Like sometimes it does happen. Sometimes, sometimes it happens. Yeah. But given how infrequently it happens, there is a reluctance to give a lot of oxygen to stories about when it does happen. But if it happened to you, if it happened to your brother or your friend or your father, or your lover, you'd be pretty pissed that no one wanted to cover the story about how somebody lied about them and maybe they had to go to jail or maybe their life was ruined or whatever. And like, how do you balance like the reality of something bad happening to someone against the broader trend of the problems being on the other side of it. And that's, that's genuinely tough. How can you tell when someone is genuinely concerned about reporting on the Duke rape case? And is that Jesse single or are, uh, well, how do you tell when someone who's like obsessed with like clouding the discourse and making it seem like all women are lying about rape or most women are lying about rape. Right. Like, how do you tell the difference? That's, I think that's genuinely hard. And we're, we're, we're sometimes getting it wrong and calling people who are just reporting about the Duke rape case and, you know, and what really happened and conflating them with someone who has an agenda. But it's very difficult to tell. And, I, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be an authority there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel like, it, I guess, like, in terms of, like, are you saying, like, like, 
people want to underreport like detransitioning or like, yeah, like over there are some people who say like any any coverage of a detransitioner is politically motivated mm-hmm. that detransitioners are kind of inconvenient to the movement and you know and what and I know that there's been a lot of time since when Jesse wrote that first Atlantic cover article and now but when that article first came out and it was kind of like the only thing that he had written about this issue, more or less, at least at, at that scale, his argument was that he was reporting and he's, these two transitioners came up and their their experience was that because of how politically kind of disadvantageous or inconvenient their stories were, they found like they didn't get a lot of hearing within their own community. And it was very difficult to get anybody to listen or even care about what they had gone through because they understood it. They weren't trying to derail other people from getting access. They were just saying, well, in my case, here's some things that I would have liked to have gone differently. And now it's become this whole other thing. And there are a lot of really bad faith detransitioners for sure. And there are a lot of people who are exploiting any kind of medical mess up or any kind of advice or psychological mess, anything to argue that nobody should get any access to healthcare. And so right. like, it's completely understandable why people would be very skeptical about these stories, but what does that mean for the, the people who, or, you know, like BK even yeah, who had a, you know, an, an, an orthodox experience. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, it is kind of complicated, but I feel like my, again, my opinion of it is like, I don't see why they're, stories shouldn't be told i don't think it is personally i don't think it's harmful i guess i could understand like why the quote-unquote movement but again like i i guess i would say whose movement um would like not want those people to be like shown or present but i don't feel like you know largely those are representative people like a lot of the time like when we're talking about like movements a lot of these things are represented by like these big like NGO adjacent spaces and things. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of like the the work and like narratives and like stuff that people like use are like co-opted or like like I don't know. Like I just feel like again, I'm I'm only speaking from my experience and when I talk and engage with other like trans people like there there are honest conversations about like you know concerns like regret like there are communities of like uh like where like we're having those conversations about mm-hmm. like 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 just like what anxieties we may have about transitioning or like should we or like should we not or like how far do I want to take this or not you know mm-hmm. and um yeah like I, I think those conversations are important but like, and I think like that some people don't have that is really sad. And mm-hmm. like, I think they should, but I think like there are ways to do that without demonizing people. And I think too often it, it is used to like, yeah, like it is weaponized in a way. And I don't think mm-hmm. necessarily like, you know, people like Jesse Single. I used to listen to like his podcast and he said some something weird one time and I was like anyway but mm. I I I I'm I'm sympathetic to like and I did listen to like when they had detransitioners on so I'm like I I'm, I'm genuinely sympathetic to that narrative mm-hmm. and that experience but um 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, I just don't think that, like, I just don't think that those experiences and, like, one person's, like, regret or mistake should be shaping, like, everyone else's opportunities, you know? I think um, that's very well put. You know, and I feel like um, we don't really, like, I feel like we understand that in a lot, in, like, a lot of other issues and, like, mm-hmm. in a lot of other ways. But, like, suddenly, like, when it comes to, like, the conversations around trans people, whether they even, like, personally, whether they're even, like, children, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, just, again, like, I know, like, children's rights stuff is really complicated, but, like, as my experience, like, organizing as a child and, like, the way people engage with me and, like, just, like, just knowing as a young person, and this might, I might have sound sound like I was, like, a precocious child, but, like, just like having like a really clear understanding that I was like smarter than a lot of the adults I was engaging with or like Mm. more like self-possessed. It is really frustrating to like have your, like just not have agency because just because, you know, um, in a lot of ways. And I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I I genuinely don't think like, I, 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 again, I can't stress this enough that I feel for like people who detransition, they deserve community. They deserve like all those things and their stories and like experiences should not be weaponized against others. But like, just because they made a mistake or like maybe like, like the, the person who like was handling their process was. Hear me? Sasha. Oh, you just cut off for a second. You said handling their process was. Yeah, like, just because their process was handled poorly, does that's not, like, I don't, again, I don't think that's an issue of, like, transness. I think that's an issue of mm-hmm. incompetent, like, healthcare, like, and, like, structure, you know? Like, I feel like that's a, that mm-hmm. the problem there is, like, our institutions and, like, their lack of, their inability to properly take care of, um, you know, the citizens, I guess. I think that's a really important point. And I think that framing is constructive and Sasha I am not telling you or anybody else how to run anything but I think that if people like you and were listened to and the kind of conversations you're describing happening within the community were had more or had more oxygen like people who are members of the community understood that there was that kind of nuance happening that frankly there would be you know, pe- people would feel less like there was a zealotry happening here. You know what I mean? Like it's being framed in the public eye as like, you know, if you don't agree with me, then you're evil. If you don't agree with me, then you're a turf. If you don't agree with me, you're a transphobe. If you have so many of the things that we've discussed here today would easily get a turf label slapped on. Yeah. I think if you say the word, it feels a little like if you, if you say like sexual dimorphism or biological like those are words that i personally try to avoid but it makes conversations very difficult and i try to avoid them because i'm trying to avoid being lumped in with turfs to be honest for the sake of like i guess kind of like um i don't know like what the black equivalent of this is like not inviting people to the cookout or whatever but like you know like i like trans people make fun of trans shit you know like like or like you mainstream like you know like stuff and Mm -hmm. like poke fun and like 
acknowledge like like we have like antagonisms towards those things too and like again like i'll say like it's hard because like yeah like i i i know a lot of the like my opinions would get me labeled as like probably like turfy or like true scummy but like what's true scummy um true scum is like people who believe like that you need to medically transition in 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 order to be oh to be really trans yeah and it's like that's not my Mm -hmm. belief but like the way that i may like word or like talk about certain things might give people like might you know like might have people like feel up in arms and like call me that you know Mm. but um i sincerely again i want to reiterate that's not how i feel you do not have to take whatever hormones it's a safe space asha right but (laughs) for anyone listening later um yeah i just feel like 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 again like we're like trans people are feeling like the like annoyed and frustrated and like antagonized by the way that these conversations are happening too like and from like the same place of like yeah this feels hard to talk about like people are gonna call me like yeah. Well, people are going to call me a man and people are going to call me a turf. People are going to call me this, that, and the third, like, you know, yeah. like, so it's like, well, it's like the black stuff. Like that. there are race combos that I know I'm going to get heat for. I mean, they do call me the Candace and ones at the left, but I just don't care because I'm black. Like, I'm like, okay, call me a racist or whatever, but I'm black at the end of the day. I don't give a shit what you say. And so there was that insulation of being within the group that, yeah. you know, protects you, but also makes me feel like I have an obligation to speak out. So I'm not telling you you have an obligation. All I'm saying is that this has been really constructive and I'm so grateful that you are, have joined this community and joined the chat and spent so much time talking to me. And I nominate, like, I hope that more people like you get more of a platform and where their voices are being able to be heard more broadly. Cause right now, let me tell you, the people who are out here are like, do you remember that woman that worked for Elizabeth Warren and had to get canceled because she had all those anti-Asian tweets? And she was kind of a plus-sized black woman with, who wore like a turban and like, you know, kind of flamboyant cape-like outfits. And she um, was like a real, she was having a real moment in like 2017, 2018. She went, she was one of these influencers that went to work for Warren and then they had to get rid of her because she had all of these uh, racist tweets about Asian Americans. I... I I have no idea what. Anyway, she's who's out here. (laughs) (laughs) She is who's out here. It is these kind of academic approach as people who are like not living their truth, you know, who have all these skeletons in the closet or people who seem a little bit newer to this space. I don't know how you feel about Dylan Mulvaney, but like, you know, I, you know, I want to, I want to defend her because of all the bad faith shit she's getting, but also. I don't know if she's like the most articulate voice on some of these issues at the same she's time. Do you know not. what I mean? She's definitely not. And like, I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you what we say about her because that's again, like for trans people, but <laughs> right. In group, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, you know, um, like, yeah, I, I just like, we'll save our private conversation about Zoe, Del Don- Zoe Saldana for the black chat. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, it's like sometimes you get, like you like read somebody or whatever, but it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I I feel like there are people like I and you know, this is the point I wanted to make. Like one one of the points that I wanted to make, and I really I didn't mean to take up this much time, but what I wanted to say when I first came on was that, um, I think like again, like for me, like what's interesting about like 
I guess, like trans issues, quote unquote, is not really trans issues, but like everything that it dovetails into, like children's rights and like mm. all these other things and like healthcare and like, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, to me, like a, an interesting conversation. And again, like, I know this is probably coming from like, you know, like as a trans person, there's just like a, a point, like, you know, like I don't have to keep explaining to like white people, like why, like how racism works. I want to like have a, you know, like a more yeah. advanced conversation, but like, I think it would be interesting. And I'm not saying you have to do this, but like, just like, as like how I'm thinking about this, if like, there were like scholars and like people who like any, genuinely like research and understand this, like has some kind of panel and we're talking about this, like Esperanza, like um, Aaron, mm-hmm. Um, uh, Emma Haney. Oh, I don't uh, know her. Emma Haney. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but this person named um, I know their name is Paisley, and they 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 wrote this book called "Sex Is as Sex Does," I think is what it's called. Um, and like I, BK, I think has mentioned this person before who I I also whose name I don't know but like they I think they brought him up when they were talking about like um a trans person who has a who has like a chapter on trans sports but like a panel of like people like that like who genuinely have vested interest in this like mm-hmm. really going at it and talking about like what their disagreements and like you know like the nuances of like these things may be because like like they're, like again for me that would actually be getting to something like I like I don't need to hear about whether or not you think trans people should exist. What I mm-hmm. want to know is mm-hmm. like you know like um you know like like how like these things intersect with like like children's rights, how these things intersect with healthcare, how these things intersect with how like trans women are like regulated to prostitution and like don't get to like access like like a lot of like you know normal forms of labor like those are interesting conversations and like what those like professionals and like you know like maybe not even professionals but like just like like thoughtful like intelligent people on the matter like like their opinion and like ideas like them going at it and like discussing things would be Mm -hmm. interesting to me personally um and i'm not saying you have to do that but i'm just I'm just trying to make a clearer. Oh, look, like, I'm happy to, to, to. Half the people are like, no, they don't talk about trans stuff anymore. And half the people are like, I mean, there's obviously an appetite for it. There's a reason why the last three Collins have like largely been devoted to this issue, even though only one of the three was an episode about this. So, like, I find it to be fascinating. And I feel like it's an area where I can help to mediate some constructive conversations if I can, you know, find the right in-group people from the community to, to be along the journey with me because I'm not trying to be sitting here pontificating by myself. And so I do want to say again, Sasha, that I'm so grateful to you and BK and Rika and everybody else who's called in to help work these things through. I know it's annoying to have to like explain I'm the white person in this in example, explain to white people all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm grateful for it. Um, and this yeah. has been really good. Thank you, Sasha. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry I took up so much time. Everyone else waiting. That's really my bad. Um, it's okay. They'll deal. Orson and Ruben and I, um, 
the person who was in the queue of pseudonym who got kicked to the back. I'm really sorry. Please do call in again. I, I'm saying your names out loud to see if I can like remember them and try to prioritize you for the next time. We'll get there. This community is excellent. I really appreciate you. Yeah. We're going to leave it there. I got to um, close my rings. I have to go. My, um, my cat's got like eight rat poisoning and my boyfriend just got back with them. Oh no. Okay. So, go take care of your cat, Sasha. We're going to wrap this episode now. So everyone take care of yourselves. Thank you again, Sasha. And keep the faith. Peace. I was a lion in the tall grass Wish I had a pilot and a podcast Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass And travel with portable speakers playing Baja's scans Wish I had a million dollars Wish I had a million hours Wish I had a million problems That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes I wish I found a genie lamp I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man Wish I was a comedian, late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth, you can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like it's like. I wish, I wish, and every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, and every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, but every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming scheme.